Welcome to Discussions with the NUI Galway Law Review. Tune in for episodes that will cover a wide range of highly requested topics and discussions with various experts in their field. You won't want to miss it. You name it, we talk about it. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, uh, to another episode. I'm delighted to be joined by Keno Carroll, um, obviously from the firm in his own name, uh, one of the country's foremost experts on medical negligence. And I'm just as delighted to introduce a uh, returning guest and now co-host for this episode, Ursula Connolly. Uh, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to step back and just say, Ursula, the show is yours. Oh, thank you very much, Matthew. Yeah, equally delighted to be welcoming Kean with us today and really looking forward to our chat. So most people will know this, but for those who don't, um, just a quick intro to who Kean O'Carroll is. So he's a solicitor uh, specialising, as Matthew said, in medical negligence and personal injury law primarily. So he's a law firm with a practice of six, six solicitors, including himself, and it's based in Cashel County, Tipperary. So in the early stages of his practice, he was more involved in criminal defence, employment law and personal injury litigation. Now, however, his main interest is working on behalf of those, as his website says, who have suffered an injustice at the hands of the state. And without a doubt, more recently, he has become known as the leading solicitor in cases of negligence or alleged negligence in the cervical check cases. So he has successfully represented some of the most high profile litigants in the cervical check cancer, including the incredible Vicky Phelan and the late Emma Vicwahona, Ruth Morrissey and Patricia Carrick. So you're really welcome to the podcast, Kian. We're really delighted to have you with us. You know, as a tort lecturer on the academic side, I feel I'm often watching from the sidelines those involved in litigation such as yourself. And you in particular have made such an impact more recently with your cervical check litigation. But it's fair to say you didn't start out in law, did you? So could you tell us a little bit about your background and then what ultimately attracted you into the law? Sure. Hi, Ursula and Matthew. Thanks for the introduction and for inviting me along to have a chat today about all these things. How it started, I wasn't a very good student and (laughs) I broke my parents' heart on many occasions. I think all the way through secondary school, they kept hoping that something was going to happen and I'd uh, wake up. But it didn't really. And uh, I ended up kind of scraping my way into into college. Um, I went to Maynooth and did a science degree. And while I was there, my father was killed in an accident in the workplace. And I was... Sorry to hear that. Thank you. Um, I was 19 at the time. He was only 53, which now in the year of my 50th birthday seems particularly young. And... Because he was killed in a very complicated circumstance involving a couple of different jurisdictions and killed through gross negligence, it launched my mother into a legal action, which ultimately sent me up the aisle in the library in college uh, from science where I was uh, floundering to um, a, a law section and I found a book on tort. So I just wanted to try and understand a bit more about what was going on. And I really liked it. It was words instead of numbers and symbols. And uh, it, it, it just suited me. I was, I was, but, but I hadn't anything like the marks I needed in my leaving cert originally, nor did I even contemplate law. So mm. I think I decided then I would um, think about that as the next step. So I finished my science degree and 
went on then. Back then, you couldn't. Uh, Galway were offering a postgraduate degree, but it was I applied and it was only open to your own students from your BA course. Um, and so, like a lot of others, I did a postgrad diploma uh, in in legal studies. It was Rathmines were doing one and Portobello were doing one. I, I, I did the one in Portobello and then crammed for the entrance exams for the Law Society and then got those and then you go looking for an apprenticeship as it was called then and on you go. So wow. I've like I have no law degree. Um I have a science degree which is a very bad one at that. <laughs> and uh, somehow uh, found yeah. my new- Well, apologies for the narrow-mindedness of Inuit Galway in terms of its admission criteria at the time. I think we've certainly improved on that now. But I think what you said about your own background will give a lot of people hope. I think there is particularly now so much pressure on students to be high flyers from the get-go when it's so obviously not the case. You know, we find our ways slowly and often in circuitous routes, um, such as yourself, in fact, you know, so interesting. Well, I, yeah. I um, it, it probably misguides me in many ways because I know at home, in our own family, um, my, my view is probably, well, everything's going to be fine and I'm not uptight about the, mm. the kids and how they do in school, even though they're they're pretty good students. Um, but you, you reflect on your own situation and maybe that doesn't happen for everybody, but certainly with me, I kind of woke up around 20 after yeah. uh, after that had happened uh, and, and it certainly changed the course of my life. But then again, but for that tragedy, what what would have happened um, and yeah. how would things have turned out? So I Yes. I, and it's, you know, such a tragic thing to have happened in your own family and sincere condolences even now on that, because I know these things reverberate through the years. They don't just finish at any time. But that, I mean, might well have given you then a particular insight into the tragedies of others and how the law can be used for good or ill to bring some respite or some sense of justice when people have been wronged, which maybe brings us to some of those very high profile while cases that you have been involved in arising from the cervical check cancer that feels like it's been with us now forever, but in fact, it's only been with us in the public domain, at least for a few short years. So just talking about those cases, could you, could you talk a little about how you first got involved with the litigants involved in those cases, the survivors or the victims, if you like, of the cervical check um, scandal? How did it? Um, well, yeah, so- just about three years ago, um, it was in January, the end of January of 2018, and we're now in December of 2020. Yes. We were contacted by uh, a new prospective client, Vicky Phelan, and she had seen the work we had done involved in cancer misdiagnosis, which was the, the major part mm-hmm. of the practice up to then, although mostly relating to breast cancer at that time. And the fact that we've been involved in a lot of very urgent cases, so the courts will deal with cases on a, on a different ti- timeline or timescale where the prognosis is quite bad for the patient. And so we had experience of bringing cases through in two, three, four months um, from start to finish. And I think that those were the features that uh, attracted Vicky. And so she contacted us and and we met. And I think that was, that was the very end of January. We had proceedings issued then in February and we had a trial date in April. And on the third day of that trial, then it it settled and was ruled. And it's at that point that Vicky made her public remarks, yes. which 
outside the usual spot on the steps, yeah. steps at that, the forecourts. Um, and something about what she said and the way she said it, and maybe just the, the general demeanor of her mm. seemed to catch people's attention and lit a spark. Yes. And by the next day, it, there were kind of, there were political questions being asked. I think the fact that the settlement in the case was 2.5 million, a magnitude or order of settlement that perhaps we've become more accustomed to in the inter- in- interim. Mm. But then it was a shocking headline number for a fatal injuries action where I think prior to that, the highest level of damages awarded in a fatal cancer misdiagnosis case, which involved a child with special needs, as I understand it, was 1.6 million. And our experience was that it was extremely difficult to get damages in excess of 1 million. I say that because damages have a purpose. Damages are not calculated as a, a giveaway sum or a payout, as people repeatedly refer to nowadays, which I think is offensive. Mm. Um, but damages are calculated as a way of making provision for things which will no longer be there when somebody has died. And where it's a young mother, those things are many and varied. So uh, so anyway, that's the, the spark was lit by Vicky and she continues to fuel it and she continues to fuel that fire um, right to the present day. She and I are working on on a podcast type thing, a vlog, uh, where we're just discussing through the various issues that have arisen over the last three years. And we'll, uh, we'll continue doing that now as she heads to the States to continue on a new chapter of her care because her cancer has started growing again. So she has to look at a different option. But the other women you mentioned, they're all dead. Yes. And um, yeah, they've all, they've all died over this period of three years and many others besides uh, that people wouldn't have learned the names of because the courts, despite what the Tushigan Minister for Justice like to suggest, the tribunal is not the only place that offers people privacy and anonymity. The courts have done so for many people. Yes. But the women that, that you named, they chose for a very particular personal reason and often a very selfless reason yes. uh, to allow themselves to become known so that other women would learn. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think for anybody watching this from outside, we'll say, even though we're all involved in some way, um, is struck by the courage of those people who have come forward because this could easily never have come to um, the public consciousness. There are a lot of women who might well have been diagnosed with cervical cancer who never would have known as in the case of a number of them, including Irene Teep, who we haven't mentioned, but who would not have been told that their earlier smears um, had an issue with how they were read. So there is a massive debt, which I think the Irish public are well aware of, owed to the people who did come forward, such as Vicky Phelan and Emma Vigwana and Ruth Morrissey and Patricia Carrick, and of course, Irene Teep, and her husband as well. So a massive debt is owed to them. But when you, I should say, Vicky's yes. just, just to cut in there, that yeah. it, ultimately it all stems from a decision that Vicky Phelan made and that she mm. dated to myself and my colleague Siobhan Ryan, who uh, a really brilliant solicitor here in this practice and has worked on so many of those cases. But one of the first things Vicky said to us was that she wasn't going to um, get involved. I don't know why she saw this as being an issue coming down the tracks, because I wouldn't have. But she said there won't be any confidentiality mm. agreement. And such things are actually quite unusual. Yeah. But in her case, it was insisted upon. Yeah. And no offer would be made at mediation until she agreed to a confidentiality clause. And it was that decision by her to say, I'm not doing that. That's what led to all of those other dominoes falling. Yes. And it showed massive 
insight on her part and a lack of selfishness, pure selflessness, because it's not an easy thing, of course, at a time of such personal trauma to put yourself then into the public sphere, essentially at odds with what the state is asking you to do. I mean, often in litigation, I always think in cases like this, the litigant is in such a weak position in many ways. You know, they're the ones who are going through the personal trauma, their financial considerations. There are so many of, of which, of course, you'd be more aware than most. Um, I just when you mentioned the podcast, Podcast. We'll very much look forward to that and hopefully you'll get that done. Uh, it'll be a massive um, resource, I think, for our students, which is what we often have at the forefront of our minds, but also for the public more broadly, I think, and for those in practice as well. So, well we have about yep. eight episodes recorded Do so far. You? Oh, that's and, fantastic. Um, we're supposed to try and get another few done this week, but we can keep doing it even when the Brilliant. When people. Just one little point I should yes. say, because I do like to be fair in these things, but it wasn't actually the state who was insisting on the confidentiality. Oh, it was the labs. It 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 was the laboratory, and in okay. this case, that was the uh, Texas-based um, CPL was the laboratory in question. Okay. Uh, in in this case, the state state claims agency. We didn't know it at the time, but it was subsequently clarified. But to be fair to the state claims agency, they. They, they don't conduct themselves that way. Okay, well, we're very glad to hear that, of course, you know. So just, you know, when you're um, talking about the approach of the laboratories in this case, and mm. in, in these cases more generally, these cervical check cases, I mean, your practice is very experienced now in medical negligence um, but were, was there something different about these cases, uh, apart from just maybe the legal issues involved, but in, in how they were run or procedurally or because it involved the laboratories and not just the state, did that colour it in a different way or, mm. or not? Yeah, it did. And you could say if I had my time back, we would probably do things differently. So if you go back to January of 2018 and the start of February, we'll say 2018, the start of Vicky Phelan's case, we had a decision to make. And typically, most hospital or health service services have other parties involved behind the scenes someplace. You know, you go into mm-hmm. a hospital, you're given an injection, the equipment hasn't been made by the HSE, it's been made by a medical devices company. And so if you if you drill far enough into any set of circumstances, you'll probably find other parties have some liability or may have some liability. But here we were presented with a very glaring, obvious other party, which was that we had mm-hmm. a laboratory result from an outsourced private laboratory in the US. And could we just sue the HSE for their primary duty of managing the uh, screening service, or should we have regard to the obvious other party? I'm not calling them a third party mm-hmm. yet because ultimately they they became a co-defendant. Yes. And the deciding factor there, my, my view was that, that we shouldn't, and we should just go for the finish line as quickly as possible. And you do that by having the least complicated architecture to your case. Yes. So sue the HSE only. And uh, but ultimately, it was decided that we would not. We would sue the HSE and the laboratory and CPL. And the reason for that was that if we didn't, if we only sued the HSE, the high risk was that they would then seek to join CPL as a third party. It would now be an additional application in the case. We would then be faced with the probable uh, necessity to then decide to ask the court to join them as a co-defendant, and we would have wasted a month. Okay. And it was a month that. It looked like our client didn't have because at Mm. that stage, she hadn't even begun um, taking the uh, life extending pembrolizumab, which has worked so well for her. 
And so she certainly didn't look like the healthy woman that she looks like today. And she didn't have that. Uh, she had a pretty terrible prognosis. So so that was a big issue. And to come back to your question, is the, does that make these cases different? Yes. Well, it did. It complicated things because the state could then hide behind the laboratory and adopt this position of, hey, we're neutral. And that's a word that I heard their senior counsel in the high court use ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there were jokes about it yesterday in the High Court, where for the first ever time, we had the opportunity in such a case to say we're adopting a neutral position here. And uh, the the, the use of the word wasn't lost on the judge. Mm -hmm. So uh, the state adopted this, I think, morally shameful approach in these cases, that it was going to stand back and allow the laboratories to conduct themselves as they wished. Mm -hmm. That included pretending to enter into mediation with dying women and making no offer whatsoever. And so they were hand in hand and hand in glove with the laboratories all the way through this. While we have to listen to, you know, the likes of the former Taoiseach and the former Minister for Health declaring that uh, the HSE and the State Claims Agency were doing everything they could Mm. to uh, behave humanely in these cases. And they were not. Can I jump in and ask a quick question? Sorry, it's just something I'm actually curious about because I'm really enjoying kind of just listening to you and I just think when I think about, you know, the purpose behind these type of litigations, it just it kind of makes me want to ask a question. Um, I will point out again, know nothing about medical negligence. But when I think about like the purpose behind damages, the, the purpose behind taking cases like this, is it then a priority to make sure these cases get to trial, you know, so they get into the public eye to kind of inspire change or kind of nearly force change or force places like, you know, the laboratories and the HSE to kind of, you know, look at their practices as opposed to settling these cases outside of court? No, I don't think that's part of our job. I think the I think the job is to establish, well, the job is to do whatever the client wants you to do. So there are occasions where the client wants to have a public advocacy role. And it's very clear that Vicky Phelan saw that as part of her mission and she wanted a public advocacy role, I think, to give a bit more meaning to what was happening to her. And uh, part of that would become her legacy, but just a sense of doing something of value to other people. But from the legal practitioner's point of view, my job is not to make a policy or a political point or to try and fix the health service. It may be that there are little things you can do along the way, which might nudge things in that direction, or might assist in guiding or informing public opinion. But ultimately, my job is to make sure that the case is successful, and that in bringing it successfully, we leave no stone unturned to identify what damages uh, should be claimed and, uh, and, and bring those to a successful conclusion. Yeah, it's an interesting question to pose, though, Matthew, to what extent does the solicitor representative role ever fall into that realm of now being an advocate for change in our system change? And I think it's correct to say that generally that isn't the role, as Kian has said, that you know, as he rightly points out, you're there to represent your clients. But without a doubt, a lot of the clients in these cases have themselves become massive um, advocates for change and um, have done an extraordinary job actually Mm. in doing so. But there were a number of interesting things as well that have been raised there. And I've been mulling over them myself for some time. And it's the, the role of the laboratories and how really the state should deal with that. You can see that, you know, if you look at it from a purely financial 
point of view that, of course, it makes sense for the state to try and, if you like, push the responsibility over onto the laboratory. So you're talking there about them being the main people responsible, if you like. And, you know, could we draw parallels, do you think, in any other area of what we would call state failure. I I was thinking or wondering if any parallels could be drawn with what happened with institutional abuse, where, again, if you like, the state was found liable, but they had, in a way, delegated the role of taking care of children to a third party. And there didn't seem to be the same determination on the part of the state to attach responsibility to the third party, the religious institutions in those cases, as there seems to be in this case um, of the laboratories. And you can see differences. You know that the laboratories are a service and they were paid for that. I mean, again, there are parallels that the laboratories, though, might be profit making, which might be a difference. I'm not quite sure. But do you have any sympathy for the state's position in always wanting to, even now with the tribunal, um, insisting that the laboratories are involved in any litigation against them? None. Okay, well, that's, <laughs> that's a quick answer to that. I don't know if you need to elaborate. You've kind of made a point earlier yeah, on I it. I do slightly because, because I think that there is, they survive the oxygen that, that, that helps to feed their protection in a way here is this idea that they have to protect the public purse. Mm-hmm. But unlike the religious institutions, the laboratories gave, freely, willingly gave a contractual indemnity to the state to protect it from the consequences of any loss that it would suffer through litigation. And in addition, the courts have found that there is also uh, a non-contractual indemnity, uh, an ordinary legal indemnity that exists Mm. because they provided a service. And the state could have done what Leo Varadkar first, I think, instinctively said would be done. And often the instinctive approach to a legal issue is often correct. I mean, I find that law is pretty much common sense. And he said the state will join with the women and address their compensation needs and then turn to the laboratories to cover those costs. And that's exactly what the indemnity offers. And somebody decided at a very high level that they were not going to do it that way. They were not going to carry some of the burden for the women, have a system where they could be um, compensated for their losses and, and then mop up with the laboratory. And that was that's a conscious decision that they took. And there are various excuses that they still come out with. And they say, well, not every one of these cases will be cases of negligence. Absolutely. But you could vet them. Yes. The, the state could, could set up a, a preliminary exam in a way where you, you vet the degree of discordance in the reading of each smear and you say, well, this case, we're pretty confident we're going to prove that that was negligently misread by Quest Diagnostics and we'll be able to rely on our uh, indemnity there and recover from them. And if they got it wrong, they wouldn't get it wrong in more than 10% of cases, I'd say. Yes. And you make a couple of very important points there. The contractual indemnity certainly being one. And the second one, the relative ease really in carrying out that review you speak about to find out if there is that discordance between the initial reading and now the second reading. And in fact, they have carried out that review on, on you know, a, a significant number of cases already and identified cases where there is this discordance. So 
Yes, you're absolutely right. And it does seem, as you say, that there appears to have been a decision made at some point, because certainly the earlier decision was, as you say, that women would not be forced into court. And we will get to the tribunal. And in fact, maybe we'll get to it. Well, actually, we might leave the tribunal for a moment, because before we leave, maybe a discussion of the cases, you've raised some really interesting points on them already. But we maybe shouldn't leave the discussion without and maybe speaking about the Ruth Morrissey case, because that was a very significant legal judgment, in particular because of the appeal then that went to the Supreme Court. So I wonder if you'd like to speak maybe just for a few moments of what you consider to be the most significant aspects of that decision or judgment. Yeah, well, it, it covers quite a range of things. Looking solely at the issue of cervical cytology and this and the screening service, you obviously have the issue of the standard of care being addressed yeah. by the High Court and the Supreme Court. That became hugely controversial after the High Court decision. And I see now in recent weeks that there's something of a resurgence mm. in criticism within the medical and screening community where uh, the new boss of Cervical Check is back out in the public domain saying that we provide and provided a world-class service and we did nothing wrong. Yes. Um, so clearly she hasn't read uh, High Court or Supreme Court judgments or the expert evidence given by experts from both sides of the Atlantic and the UK, all of whom who formed that view that, uh, including the laboratories themselves, by the way, in the case, who said that the absolute confidence test in screening is what is adopted. Yes. And what that simply means is, and it's enshrined now, at least in Irish law, is that number one, the Supreme Court said courts and judges do not decide what the standard of care is. Mm doctors and the medical professions do, and they inform us of what their standard is, and we then apply that. That's the first mm. thing. So this is not courts dictating to doctors, mm. telling them how they should conduct themselves. So can we please, you know, medical profession, please appreciate that and stop bleating about the terrible burden that you're put under mm. by litigation and by the standards of the courts. Mm -hmm. It's your own standard, and you're just asked to meet yes. it. Yes. The second thing is that that standard is not one of the impossible standard of you know absolute certainty, as a lot of people like to call yes. it. Um, it is simply that if there is a doubt about the normality of a cell or cells on that slide, if you have a doubt, and if those cells are there in sufficient quantity that you ought to have seen them, well, then you cannot pass that slide as being normal. You must hand it over as a cytoscreener, as a non-doctor. You must hand it over to the consultant cytologist to make a final call. And the consultant cytologist then applies the ordinary standard mm. in medical negligence of the duty of care as espoused in the in the Dunn test. Yeah. So that those are those are the main yes. medical issues. But then the case goes on to deal with a whole host of other things which have a much broader appeal. Yes. And and certainly I think, you know, just from a, a legal perspective, that standard, the absolute confidence standard, I know when I saw that high court decision myself, I didn't think there was anything at all controversial about that. It was an absolute confidence that you had met the reasonable standard, if you like, so that you had met the standard that would be expected for a screen, uh, kind of an examination of the uh, the smear. So it wasn't that, as you say, absolute certainty, precisely that you're absolutely correct. It wasn't that. It's absolute confidence that you've met the standard. And yeah, I think the you're right to say that the um, the comments more recently in recent months by the director of cervical check have been disappointing. But we'll put those maybe to one side. I think well, the yeah. Irish Times published the Irish Times published a very lengthy op-ed mm. uh, the week before last. 
Yes. And uh, and it was. I'm trying. I'm struggling to remember the name of the uh, of the doctor. He was a he's a retired um, consultant and colposcopist. But it was written. I, I thought I was in a time warp. It looked like it was written right back two and a half years ago, and trying to explain to us all what screening is and, the, and, the, and that we don't understand that screening is not diagnostic. I think we all have that at this stage, yeah. and I think the court gets it. Um, and again, no mention made of the fact that the Supreme Court has uh, clarified the issue, and that's it. Just yes. get on with it. Please. Yes, absolutely. And do you think that the this type of attitude, which you do see, uh, unfortunately, at the highest levels of almost like an unquestionable authority from a certain professions, either the medical profession or wherever you might see it or the polit- political sphere. Do, do you think that that still persists? Because rather than leave it maybe as a question, I'll move on to um, the next maybe significant case, which is that of the late Patricia Carrick. And maybe the most significant thing in her settlement was that it came with this apology and the apology, political apologies now have become, I won't say a fashion, I'm not trying to minimise the importance of them, but we have seen them mm. more recently, how, how meaningful maybe they are in terms of what they deliver. I'm less convinced, but in any event, we have seen the apology and the benefit that gives is, is still real. But there, ha- there was an apology also from the HSC and the laboratory involved. And we have since seen more apologies emerging in different areas. So that seems to have become a change in approach now that you do see this apology emerging. But nonetheless, we see what you've just described also, uh, an unwillingness to accept um, that you do not have unquestionable authority in certain areas and you must bend to what has been decided legally also as being the standard that's expected of you. So just in terms of um, apologies and this kind of unwillingness maybe to have initially given them, there's still obviously a reticence in apologising. Um, I think, you know, those of us maybe with some knowledge of the area would know why that reticence is there. But maybe, could you maybe just uh, speak a little bit about why you think there has been a reluctance to apologise or acknowledge wrongdoing, even if not legal wrongdoing, you know, it could be wrongdoing within the ordinary realm, but just to acknowledge that. So firstly, and whether you think we have moved um, to a much better place now or or whether you're still um, almost saddened not to see that we haven't moved far enough. So, I mean, there's quite a bit maybe wrapped up in that commenty question. I I, I think I might need your guidance to to get me through all the points. Yes. If if I could, though, it, it ties in with the apology and it links into the last issue we were talking mm-hmm. about. And it is that over the last three years, two and a half years, I think it's fair to say that, that we have seen literally hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of words written about cervical check, screening, the scandal, the reaction, all of the different aspects of it. And a lot of those words have been written by doctors or medical commentators. Yes. I have only seen one letter in the Irish Times and no article and nothing on the radio where doctors came out and said, you know, there are 30 women dead here. There are hundreds more lives that have been destroyed and affected by this. Thousands more lives affected by it, but hundreds of other women who have suffered serious harm. I wonder, is there something to be learned in all this? I wonder, could we do this better? Mm. And nobody is willing to say that. It is this absolute arrogant defiance from the people involved who say, we have done nothing wrong, we will tell you how it's to be done. And in many cases, including that recent op-ed that I mentioned in the Irish Times, saying, and if you don't like it, we're going to pull it. 
we're going to withdraw screening and then see how you like it, women of Ireland. And that's appalling. And that remains the standard approach or to say, or to try and scare people by saying litigation is the problem. Litigation is costing so much money. And if litigation costs more than the 50 million it costs a year to run cervical check, we'll have to cancel it. As if completely ignoring the fact, of course, that it's the laboratories that have to pay for the cost of their mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. And it is discouraging um, to hear you say that you feel that that's still a prevailing attitude. Um, I know that so far, you know, in terms of disclosures, it's it's very voluntary at the moment still. Um, but, you know, we are w- awaiting the requirement for compulsory disclosures, this duty of candor, if you like, and apologies. Um, there isn't time today to talk about that, of course, but it's, it's a very interesting topic in itself. So just looking at all of that, and you've probably touched on some of it already, but procedurally in how these cases are taken, I mean, what if you were to draw up ideally what the procedure should look like, you know, um, to save money, to save time, to save the trauma involved, yeah. what, what would it look like? I think it would look like a case management mm-hmm. case. So if you take, we were talking earlier about the experience of Vicky feeling through the course. Yes. Certainly, it's not easy for any litigant. But if you can condense that experience into a few months, four or five months even, all of the necessary work can be done. And time is money. So if you can do that work more quickly, we certainly see that in the case management cases we bring when we're negotiating our costs at a later stage, uh, the other side will make the point to us. But this case went from start to finish in 12 weeks. And therefore, you're not entitled to the same fee as if it took yes. four years. And in my own, in, naturally, we're, we're mm. in a business and we have to negotiate our fee. So you'd always say, well, you're punishing me for being efficient. Mm. But that's the reality. You get punished for being efficient. But you, you, you offer a better yes. service I- to your client. And the courts can do that. And what, what they need to do then from a practice and procedure point of view is create a system of case management for all cases, or at least for most yes. cases, so that it's not just the preserve of the person who is yes. dying. And currently, it nearly always is. Now, we, we had an application yesterday for case management for a man who has suffered uh, paralysis in an awfully traumatic accident, as you can imagine. And um, that's, in my experience, I think that's about the first time we've successfully brought a case management application for somebody who isn't dying particularly from a cancer misdiagnosis situation or, yes. or yeah, cancer is, is, is the most common. So I will certainly in my practice try to make that more the practice that where somebody needs the outcome from litigation, not to prejudge the outcome, because obviously there are two sides to any case. But if a case is to have meaning, the provision or the damages that it provides or can provide are typically needed yes. quickly in the most serious cases so people can get home people can have adaptations made to their house they can have a nurse a private nurse available to come and look after them in the loving setting of their own family so all of those things are that's the procedural change yes. i'd like to see and kian i mean that sounds wonderful it sounds like some kind of nirvana so we presume that there are many blockages in the system which prevent that from being ruled out maybe more broadly. Do you think the legal profession itself, just outside of the judicial system, but do you think the legal profession has any responsibility in, in the delay involved in, um, in bringing cases to a conclusion? Oh, yeah. Mm. I mean, mean, I just, 
Yes, I do. I mean practitioners. Oh, God. But, well, we're responsible for all of the good and all mm. of the ill, because ultimately, either through long practice mm-hmm. um, or a failure to innovate or a failure to identify the problems, you know, you have to accept that we're responsible for all those. And many of the, almost all of the uh, negative remarks and critical remarks that I make about the medical yes. profession, they can make back with justification about lawyers. The difference is that lawyers tend not to have the ability to destroy lives and to destroy health. So um, what, um, I mean, you say that what I was describing there is nirvana. Um, I think it's entirely mm-hmm. achievable and and achievable quite quickly because the same amount of court time is necessary mm-hmm. to provide an efficient service as an inefficient service. Yeah. And practitioners then, we would tend to be a bit pushy, perhaps, when it comes to trying to drive mm-hmm. cases on. Having said that, we have a few doozies uh, <laughs> on our books here where you, you look at them and go, oh my God, how can I even look at that client in yeah. the face? And it's you know six years on and we still haven't managed to figure this out. But, but generally, we try to get high court medical negligence actions and, and we achieve it within two years, sometimes three years. And that's very good going. But the resistance we meet is from the other okay. side. And... The defense side are typically saying, as in yesterday's application, they're saying, that's not achievable. We can't have this case ready for Mm. March. And with a strong person on the bench who knows how these things can be done, and of course, most judges haven't had any solicitor experience. Like We're we're the nuts and bolts people, so we're the ones putting the Mm -hmm. bits together. And obviously, most judges are barristers and the ones who are solicitors may not have done this kind of work. So they mightn't be familiar with what's yeah. possible, but we have to show them that this is possible and achievable. And it isn't that difficult to put a big case together yeah, in three and months. and just while we're on it, and maybe not to give it too much time, but the Legal Services Regulation Act provides for pre-action protocols, but a protocol hasn't been published yet, as far as I'm aware. Do you think that that will provide maybe the impetus and the structure needed to normalise speedy resolution of cases or settlement of cases? Or, or do you think that that really isn't, isn't going to be this panacea that we're kind of hoping it is? I, I don't think it is for medical negligence because, in a sense, there has been for a long time a pre-action protocol in medical negligence, which is the obligation on the solicitor to ensure that there is a supportive expert opinion there, critical both of breach of duty and okay. causation, or indicative of breach of duty and causation. So by the time you issue mm-hmm. your proceedings, you have to have complied with that pre-action protocol. Yes. So everything is lined yes. up. You know, you're ready to go. Now there are other steps which can be which can be put in by a pre-action protocol. But what's really needed, I think, is this is to extend the system of case management so mm. that you would have, as exists in other uh, courts, yes. including the commercial court, where, where from a very early stage you're you're called in the court of appeal. Yes. Um, you're called in. You're given a timeline for all these events to happen. There is no straying. It's not just about a series of letters. Like the amount of time mm. we have to waste trying to drag defences out mm. of defendants where they set out what they say. It takes. It can take over a year in a significant proportion of cases just to try and get them through motions to give their defence, where ultimately they just send you a kind of a flat yeah. denial. The traverse, as it's called, where they just say, everything that you have said, mm. we deny. And that could have been given 
Yes, it's take almost half an like hour a that. reflex, isn't it? You know, there's kind of an, an institutional reflex, and you you just follow the the steps without looking rationally at what might be the um, best approach overall. So, yes, but if you have a yeah. system, Arsena, where you can go into court and you can you can yes. address that with the judge, the other side won't conduct themselves that way because yeah. they'll be embarrassed to do it. And um, I know I think you're right won't. as well about the commercial courts providing a good. Maybe, if you like, almost a blueprint because there has been an excellent job done there in trying to manage cases and ensure that they're not sitting around the courts for years upon years. Well, you see, when to to be fair to the uh, personal injuries list in in Dublin, um, and that's Mm -hmm. where we practice, it's uh, the non fatal personal injuries list. Uh, It still seems to be called the non fatal (laughs) list, but obviously it largely deals with But in any event, the, the current presiding judge there over that list is um, Kevin Cross. And to be fair to him, I mean, once, once you raise an issue over inefficiencies and things not coming before the court, he, he will address it. But the practice is that you're supposed to bring those types of applications and motions to the master's court in the first place. And it can be very difficult to get it in front of the person who really yeah. can make the difference. Whereas if you had a proper case yes. management list then that judge would ideally either nominate another judge or take it one morning a week and you would run through things and any problems they'd Yeah, they'd and incidentally, on. just since you mentioned that as a solution, are there any moves to have a kind of a structured case management system for medical negligence cases specifically? None that I'm aware of, but there, are, there seem to be various different committees yes. and things going on yeah. behind the scenes. But, um, yeah, nothing. But these things, could, this this could be changed with a practice direction on the twelfth of January when the yeah, legal term I think resumes. maybe just so much attention has been given to the issue of damages more recently. You know, the hysteria, if you want to call it that, appears to be around that area politically, at least. You're not allowed. You're not allowed oh. to say hysteria now, Doctor Gabriel. Doctor Gabriel Scali, he said that when when myself and Judge Cross separately used it that. It was unfortunate because it was oh, a gendered really? term. Oh, gee. Well, yeah, I don't know. Can I be forgiven given my gender? Um, so <laughs> let's see. I, I don't want to, to leave our discussion without maybe touching on the cervical Czech tribunal. Um, I know there we have hit on some of the issues maybe already, as we know, it was established in October of last year, uh, this year. Uh, we're still in 2020. And it, it gives people a relatively short period of time in which to bring cases before it. Um, that's probably an issue. And the requirement to attach laboratories is probably also an issue. But just your own view on the tribunal, do you think that despite its shortcomings, in, in the sense that some people recognise them as shortcomings, that it's still a positive initiative? Do you think it's an opportunity lost? Do you think it's a betrayal? Would you go that far? Um, so what would be your view on it? I think it's definitely an opportunity lost. There were a number of things that the tribunal could have done that the courts can't do. And if you're going to set up a new court, and yes. it is a court in in a different building. So people need to, first of all, realize that it's not a tribunal as we're uh, mm. used to hearing about. And even as recently as, God, was it July when Ruth yes. Morrissey died and Michal Martin came into the Doyle to uh, make a statement of uh, condolence to her family. And there were leaders' questions following it. And even then, in, in July of this year, the Taoiseach stood up and said, no, no, the tribunal is not mm-hmm. adversarial. And I know about tribunals. I was involved in the Hep C tribunal, he said. And this is based on the same model. And you're going, if that's the level of ignorance in high office, 
what are people supposed to think out there? So it is not a tribunal like Hep C or like the Residential Institutions Redress Board. It is a full fight forum where the parties are brought into a new area of the High Court where they can conduct their, their fight in the exact same way under the same practice and procedure and rules as exist in the High Court. And they have to prove everything. They have to prove breach of duty, causation yeah. and damage. So that's, that's unfortunate. What they could have done and should have done was to at least address um, some of the simple things. They wouldn't have to make it a no-fault tribunal, mm. but I think they should have in the way we described earlier where mm. you could have a vetting procedure and then people would be admitted to that. They should certainly have dealt with the major issue of recurrence mm-hmm. because people, albeit perhaps not in large numbers, and one would hope not, but people who are trying to make a decision on whether they should access vital compensation for the losses they've suffered to date. And remember, most of these women will not have been able to continue in the workplace after they've had their treatments. Um, so their families have suffered financially they will have expensive treatments that aren't always easily accessible there are various issues that money can help those people have a choice they can either hold on and wait to see if their cancer comes back and have no compensation in the meantime or they can claim the compensation they need now but if their cancer comes back and they ultimately have much more severe harm and will lose their life and their children will be left without a parent, they get no compensation for that yes. because they've waived their right. And that's deeply, that's, that's deeply unfair in this circumstance. And the state has been asked, I mean, I've been asking for that to be included in the tribunal yes. rules as it was included in Hep C. Since August of 2018, uh, we wrote an amendment to the bill, which was proposed by Deputy Alan Kelly. And at the committee stage, Two Fine Gael TDs, both of whom should have known better, stood up and said that the amendment was not practically possible because when cancer comes back, you couldn't tell if it was metastatic cancer as a recurrence of cervical cancer or a new cancer. And of course, mm-hmm. the very first thing you do when you get a recurrence yes. of cancer is that it's tested to see, is it a metastatic? Because if it isn't, well then, brilliant, you've got a, you've got a new primary tumor, which is much more treatable. So um, an, a medical doctor sat as chair of that committee and said nothing. So on that basis, the, the amendment was shot down. I, I'm sure the government would have found some other way to shoot it down. But I tell that story just to show you the, the level of deliberate rejection of things which would be useful to the women affected in this tribunal. And instead, they have dictated that it would be a tribunal of their form and their making. And you take it or leave it, and I'm. And that appears to be the position that a majority will, or a significant number. And I would agree with you. I I mean, I might even go further than a missed opportunity. I think yes. Well, I just can't understand it at all myself. um, Given, if you like, the rhetoric around this whole um, debacle, the the scandal from the get go, it's so difficult then to accept that hand on heart, a tribunal of this nature could have been established. It does look far too legalistic. And as you say, there were solutions, workarounds. And given what has happened to women in this country, and it's something you've touched upon yourself in the earlier conversation we have about that so many of the medical negligence failures 
do involve women, that here was an opportunity for the state in good faith to say, we have wronged you and we're not going to continue to wrong you by dragging you through an overly litigious procedure. And despite that, they've done exactly that. So it is incredibly disappointing. Yes. The statute of limitations issue, Ursula, I, I, I thought was, was, was even more shameful because the reality is that most people who have a cause of action I should say, by the way, there's there's very practical reasons why a whole load of people cannot go to the tribunal. And it's because the tribunal was conceived and designed two years ago. And a lot of things happened since then, like the judgment in Ruth Morrissey and the judgment in Patricia Carrick's case, which we we didn't really get into, but it's fine. For example, um, neither of those cases could be brought to the tribunal. But the Carrick case couldn't be brought to the tribunal Mm. because it falls outside of the 221 group or the RCOG group in that Patricia Carrick was only diagnosed last year. So she wasn't part of an audit and she couldn't do it. In the Morrissey case, it couldn't go to the tribunal because Paul Morrissey was a litigant in that. And many, many spouses and partners are co-litigants in these cases. But the tribunal only accepts an application by the woman or in the case where she has died by her family. So husbands who uh, very frequently would also be bringing a loss of consortium claim, um, which the High Court valued at €60,000 in the Morrissey case, and that stands as a reasonable valuation uh, on a spouse's loss of consortium claim, that couldn't be brought. So you'd have to advise your client to leave that behind if they wanted to go to the tribunal. Um, But the statute of limitations issue, people waited. If they waited, they waited more than two years for the tribunal to be set up. So if they haven't issued high court proceedings by now, there is a serious issue there. I don't want to say that they are statute barred, but they were told in a, at a meeting back in May of 2018, yes. kind of hands up, we made a mistake here. Now, it wasn't acknowledged that it was a breach of duty. So it wasn't acknowledged that it was legally actionable. And perhaps mm-hmm. that would be the basis of an argument on the statute. But um, they are in trouble on that. And as you know, in practice, yes. that issue of the statute would not be decided upon until the end of a case, not at the beginning. So after they have incurred enormous delay and expense and putting what little assets they have perhaps in peril. Um, so mm-hmm. the simplest thing in the world was to take, I think it's section 12 of the um, uh, yes. Cervical Check Tribunal Act and amend it to say that a person had three years from their date of knowledge to bring the action. And that was put repeatedly in correspondence to the Department of Health. And the answer that came back was that the Attorney General had said it wasn't possible, even though the Act itself already amends the statute of limitations, because it allows this extension of time, like the Personal Injuries Assessment Board does, where if your case is rejected by the tribunal and it comes back out, you're given an additional six months within which to issue high court proceedings. So that that clearly amends the statute. So how could the Attorney General argue that the statute could not be dealt with. It could be dealt with so easily. But once again, we hear... Yes, the and we General could have a whole other podcast on the nature of, of Attorney of General advice with the greatest of of respect issues. to the Attorney General. But yes, yes, and it's often what you ask, it's, it's, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, I'll give you the answer. Tell me advice. your and question. Why, why am I supposed to I'll give you, if you give me the answer, I'll tell you what to ask me. You know, it's... Um, Yes, so I, I completely agree with you there. Now, I would love if we had more time to discuss other areas of your practice, but I can see from the clock that we are up against it. But we'll at least mention there are very many other areas of medical negligence that you're involved in, in including devices. And I know 
Myself, I had a particular interest in the hip implant device cases that you've been involved in. But what we might do is, you know, I don't know, prevail upon you and maybe another time to come back and talk about those um, and maybe those other areas of practice that you're involved in. Or have you come and, you know, if you had time, of course, again, to speak to our students about some of your areas of practice. Um, I think it was very important for us to spend time discussing the cervical check cases in particular because they have raised so many interesting legal issues and because they are, from a human perspective, also obviously massively interesting. And before I leave you, um, that is something you know I would like to ask you about. These are incredibly difficult cases, um, traumatic on a personal level. Um, any death is to be regretted um, and people are to be mourned. But when the death is considered to have been avoidable, um, that becomes a much, much, I think, harder cross to bear. So for you as the solicitor in the middle of that, I wonder if you'd be willing to comment on the personal toll you feel it takes on solicitors, legal advisors in this kind of litigation. I don't, hmm. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to, somebody once told me that Bruce Springsteen, when he gets up on stage every night, he is working through his relationship with and loss of his father. And um, so I, I think certainly for me personally, I think there is a connection and it's a very obvious connection between what I do and how I got into law as I started off with. And indeed, my, my mother died um, uh, in the middle of an occasion of pretty gross medical negligence in hospital. And so I, I do think I kind of fight out those issues um, when I'm dealing with clients. Fight out is the wrong word. I I lean on those personal experiences to find a very strong personal connection with what's happening. And I think clients respond to that with a sense of trust. And by creating that empathy, by feeling maybe the anger and the sadness and there's huge anger when somebody has suffered harm through the carelessness of somebody else. By leaning on those things, you can be a much better solicitor because your client knows you're in their corner. They sense that you really are fighting for them. And that gives them a much, much better experience and outcome <laughs> to their litigation. So if your students were to take anything from this rambling chat, uh, it probably is to to be as kind and human and empathic as you can be with clients. Um, find something, never let them annoy you. Find something that you like or even love and use that. Well, Keanu Carroll, thank you so much for sharing those uh, insights with us and for giving of your time today to and thank you also for the work that you've done in exposing and representing uh, some of the people who've been so badly wronged in, in this state. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ursula and Matthew. And thank you so much again, just from our side. It's just been amazing to be able to get someone of your caliber and your, you know, your passion to be able to come on the show. I think it's really inspiration as well, inspirational as well to, I suppose, the next generation of professionals which again is something we, we were kind of aiming to inspire with this whole concept of the actual podcast is just, you know, giving that personal insight and, you know, inspiring that generation of what comes next. And I, I really do appreciate it. Just 
being able to produce this content has actually been a privilege. And from everyone we've actually spoken to, it's it's just been a really amazing experience. Super. Well, you're you're in third year, isn't it? Uh, I'm in second now, but I'm going to full year's placement okay. next year. Ah, yes. Um, well, whatever path you take, I hope you have a, a brilliant career. And um, it really is, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful area to work in. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To learn more about the NUI Galway Law Review and to stay up to date with information about workshops, guest speakers, social and career events, networking opportunities, and much more, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We'll see you next time.